This is the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 273, Book of the Month Club, The Death of Gwen Stacy. Chapman of the Comic Shenanigans, all-star podcaster of the Comic Book Legends. How are you, sir? I mean, that's quite the uh, quite the intro, but uh, it's nice to be here. It's I, it's funny. I listen to your podcast, obviously, and uh, you know, I I have been busy with my own and with life, and so you replaced me once again this time with Dave M, who's always <laughs> fun to who's very fun to listen to. It's funny. I think one time I commented on something, and he was like. You know, uh, you know he he's responded, so he seems like a very cool guy. He's the UK me. I get it. You know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, he's replaced me as your best podcasting buddy. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, I've been busy. This is what happens. You get replaced, but uh, I couldn't be replaced by a nicer gentleman. That's for sure. Uh, who's got some great taste in comics most of the time. Most of the uh, time. I will, uh, not, I will not hold it against him that he also does not uh, like Dan Slott's uh, Silver Surfer because I was like, whoa, 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 that. That's right? an amazing run. But. That's that's the funny thing is that like me and you share a lot of similar things that are like important to, to us and like our relationship as comic book fans. And then conversely, I have that sort of thing with, with Dave. So it's funny how like both of you guys step in for each other. I got my North American version and my UK, my European version. So it, it really comes down to like I was telling you before, um, what time zones. The fact that me and you are in the t- same time zone, it should make our life easier to coordinate, but we're always trying to do the same things that people do here, right? So it, it makes sometimes, even seeing Shane and Martin, sometimes months go by and it's like, why is it so difficult? We're not far. I can tell you why. I can tell you the exact reason why, at tell least me. for me, tell my me. reason why is that you're, you're talking about literal time zones, but... Yeah. When you add children involved, we're mm. not in the same time, time zone at all. That's true. And and when you have – it goes from like being single to being married and then children. They're all variations of like life is different for me than from you. And definitely children is the topper. Absolutely. It's, I find – so what you were talking about, I find it interesting when I talk to people on the West Coast, um, I usually do interviews with them at like – you know, seven thirty at night, eight thirty at night, my time. But they're talking in the afternoon. It's great for them. Yeah. Um, and for me, like that's ends up being my perfect time because, like, we're literally speaking right now in between bedtimes. Like, I yeah. put one child to bed, and I was like, okay, I got this hour. Let's do this. Uh, I got, I got between bedtimes. Let's do this. And it's amazing how actually many podcasts I've done between bedtimes now. I've actually found it's um, it's actually helped me uh, schedule podcasts and. Sometimes it's a little late for some people uh, if they were Eastern wanting to do like 839, whereas, you know, starting at 730 doesn't seem so bad. And again, if they're on the West Coast, we're talking to 430. Um, so it's not too bad. Yeah. So the the plan f- that we I have in mind for us so that we podcast more often is to do at least a once a month book club. And we'll okay. do other episodes when we get together watching baseball and all that sort of stuff. But we should try to do a once a month book club between bedtimes and yeah because because i enjoy the conversations and it's sometimes fun to have a reason to read something with somebody and kind of even if we've reread it 
if it's rereading, it, we can look back and like, is it as good as we thought? Or how does this hold mm. up? It's kind of fun to do that sometimes. But if we do little short chunks of things instead of like, like me and Dave have been doing top fives, which covers and like it very expansive amounts of reading. But mm. you have the good idea of like, let's take these stories and see how we can break them apart. So you had first first dibs to, to pick the storyline. And we are going to go with, why don't you tell us which one it is? What did you pick? So a personal favorite. So it's so funny to me. So the, the, the first comics we're talking about were literally 10 years before I was born. Uh, but for whatever reason, I really gravitate <clears throat> towards these particular issues. Um, so I love, you know, what we're about to talk about. So predominantly today, we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man 121 and 122, which are probably among the most famous Spider-Man issues there are. So it's not like these are, un, you know, unheard of gems or, you know, untold stories. These are definitely very well told, uh, very well known. But I'm curious, like, have you read, had you read these many times before in the past? Uh, 121 and 122, along with the um, issues 97 to 99, was it? Like the ones of, of Harry with the uh, the drug issues. I've always had those stories somewhere. Either I've reread the actual comics or they're always retold in something mm. I'm reading. So I'm very familiar with the story itself and the magnitude of what it represented at the time and up until now. It seems silly because these are like imaginary stories, but it's still major themes in modern movies. So this mm -hmm. is an important story in storytelling period. No, for sure. Yeah, no, they're very, very, uh, you know, they're constantly remixed, right? Like you can't, you read, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 121, you've seen this in the animated series. You've seen this yeah. uh, variation of it in the first Spider-Man movie. Like right. there's, they constantly go back to this well, because uh, it's a good well. It's, you know, it's very dramatic, powerful stuff. Uh, in some ways, it's surprising it took them 121 issues to kind of get to something that quite hit with that same you know, heft, dramatic yeah. heft. You had the death of Captain Stacy, you know, years earlier, but it didn't quite obviously have the same impact and change comics forever in the way that Amazing Spider-Man 121 and 121, sorry, 121 and 122 did. Yeah, and we're we're talking about those issues because clearly we know what Amazing Spider-Man 121 and 122 means, but for anyone listening, like, what are you talking about? Is the death of Gwen <laughs> Stacy, which... which which is great because, you know, they don't even give you the title, right, until the like, last page, which is always so dramatic. And, like, the first time I read it, I read it in a Marvel Tales reprint. Not the first time I think they did it. I think it was later. But it was, actually it was a Marvel Tales reprint that had both issues, 121 and 122, in the same package, which is probably the best way to read it because you don't have any cliffhanger. It's all there. Uh, it's, you know, a complete story from beginning to end. Uh, incredibly powerful. Like, how old were you when you first read this? I was older. When I first when I when I first read it, because uh, I was familiar with the story, so my familiarity with the story goes back early. But when I first actually read the issues, was maybe I was working full time at that point, so like twenty one, twenty two. I was older, but the reprinting of it was in. Um, uh, do you remember the thirtieth anniversary where every issue had yep. those special hollow covers with the. The, the symbol and I forgot how you describe it the 3d image in the middle yeah so it was like a hologram cover exactly in that's it hologram so in one of those issues I think they do like a, a recap of many variations of key moments in spider-man's life and he does read like a love letter from mm. Grant from Gwen 
in one of those issues or a tape player. I'm, I could be confusing it with Spider-Man Blue, but yeah. but there's something there in those in those four issues that told me how important the story of Gwen was, and I had read those young. Mm. But yeah, it's uh, like you said it, it, in the first movie, it's recreated. In a, in a way, and it's just you know that it's not the right character, but you yeah. can see it; it's iconic. Oh, for sure, it's something about that. You know, you can't have a Green Goblin and not have a bridge moment at some point. Um, as a result, um, it's interesting if you go back. You know, in terms of the context of the comics at the time, when you read one twenty, it literally you have no idea what's coming. Like, and I can only imagine what it would have been like for someone picking this up off the newsstand, when you have no concept of what's coming next, you have no advanced solicits, there's no comic book stores, there's no real like community in the way that we're used to now, there's no way to know what's coming up. You read the issue before it, it has like the Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man and Montreal, and then at the very end, he's like heading back to New York and it just says, you know, next issue, Green Goblin. That's literally it. Like there was no forewarning, and then you have that iconic turning point cover where you have like all the different people on it, like which of these people is going to die? And like, I feel like at the time, people probably were like, well, this is just a gimmick, you know? Like, it's just yeah. one of those covers designed to sell. Like, they're not actually going to kill anyone, whatever. And then they do. And then they and, and they fulfill the promise of that cover, but in the most like, heartbreaking way possible. And again, we can't understand enough how this this issue, these issues change comics. Uh, this, you know, a lot of people will kind of point to this being the end of the Silver Age, the, the true beginning of the Bronze Age, where you have a love interest die. That wasn't really something that happened. And suddenly you have a character who's been around at this point, what, 80, 90 issues, and she's dead and she's never coming back. Although because of a lot of undue pressure, she came back as a clone, but the actual girl never came back as herself. Yeah. And it, it made you... It really differentiated, I feel, Marvel Comics from its competitor in the sense that the story that will carry on, like what happens will always affect this character. It's not just going to be something that is a, a throwaway story or a, um, what would they refer to them as when they needed just a fill-in story? Inventory story. Invent yeah. A lot of what seems to have happened in DC in, in this exact time felt a lot more like inventory stories. Whereas this was, this is going to change everything. It was, it seemed like it was intended to, and it's, and it still does. Like it, it's held up. Mm -hmm. I feel like Batman didn't get his moment for like another 16 or 17 years. Uh, when you had like the death of, uh, of Jason Todd. And that yeah. was a big moment for like a long time. Obviously ultimately was reversed, you know, over a decade later, but for a long time, like that was, that was their touch point, right? For Batman, they kept coming back to this idea that, you know, Jason had died, and then what did that do to Batman? For years, they really mined that well, but it took them 16 years to get there. Like, yeah. you know, they didn't have, that was a meaningful thing that happened in the Bat Mythos that meant that kept going forward, that impacted the character, and was constantly referenced, and yet Spider-Man had been there since the 70s. And again, it's interesting as well that, you know, a lot of people love Gwen. I love Gwen, but I can admit that I, in some ways, don't know why, because she never really got a lot of good character development because she was a 60s character. Um, you know, and by the time people started really developing more of the female love interest, she was already dead. And then MJ got all the love. Yeah. And and it's, it's almost the character, and I don't mean to say this callously, but you love them more because of the tragedy, in a way. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, it, it, it gave suddenly whatever vestiges of their life you could have referred to or see how it affected Peter meant a little bit more because it was limited. Mm -hmm. And 
it, I think it, it says so much about how we, when you read this story, the pain that Peter feels when he feels like he's swashbuckling and rescued the girl and then he comes down to earth really quick and says, no, 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 no. Like you can almost hear him go, no, 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 no. Like this can't be happening. You're, you're okay. Because he, it's, is this, this is worse than Uncle Ben in a way. Mm -hmm. Because it, he felt he could have prevented Uncle Ben's death, depending on the iteration, but this one literally is because of him. Yeah, well, we'll get into that too. Like the the most famous sound effect possibly in comics ever uh, right. is in these pages. But like one, just to kind of talk about some of the things that make this issue kind of special, and also the kind of the period is just right from the beginning when you have the narration and the narration's you know talking to you from like editorials like saying like there are think quite a few things we could say about this issue, but we won't. Like there's just something about talking to the reader that way that is not really done anymore at all. And it just when I read that. I really get sucked in because I enjoy I enjoy them talking to me, you know. And they're like, again, yes, it's a little verbose at times, and but it's very compelling. And again, they continue the narration. As for its title, that's something we'd like to conceal for a while, but we promise you this pilgrim. Everyone was a pilgrim in the sixties and seventies. I don't know mm. what was going on, uh, <laughs> but it's like it's not a title you'll soon forget. And there's just something about that that right from the get go. You were you were lured in. Like if the cover wasn't already enough to be like, whoa, this is a big moment. You got to read this right from the open iteration. They really set the stakes. Like there's something big happening. We can't even tell you the name of this issue. It's it's that big. And usually that's hyperbole, right? But it literally is true. Like if you saw at the beginning the night when Stacy died, you'd be like, holy shit, wait, what? Whereas you know they save it for the end. And there's just something about again. I always wonder. Like, I wish I was around in 1973 to pick up this issue off the stands and be, like, rocked to my core. Like, people were really upset about this because they didn't expect a character to die. Like, we kind of take it for granted now that characters are going to die. They're going to be recycled out. They're eventually going to come back, most of them. But this is a death that was surprising. It was permanent. It was never reversed. Again, they have the caveat of a clone. But, you know, it, was, it never got taken away. This is one of the few remaining deaths that still matter. Um, Bucky was always the other one that was kind of held up forever. Eventually that one got reversed too, right? Like if you wait long enough, most deaths will get reversed, but I don't see Gwen's death being reversed. No, it, it's one of those things that like everyone talks about how it, it even in the re most recent movie, right? It's such a pillar of Spider-Man knowing that he loses sometimes, but some way or another, Peter rescues himself. He finds a way to, to get himself out of the rubble but this is like it just you know every panel in this is iconic i think anyone could if you could show someone a random panel from this issue you you would know it's from here this is where that's from yeah and oh it, it's it's very very again very famous you got some really great moments here gil kane's artwork is extremely on point and again like you know the green goblin at this point hadn't been used for two years you know he's kind of off the table for a bit and you know there's some great panel work here by gil kane where you know when peter is looking at how angry norman osborne is and all he can remember is him as the goblin yeah. and just the look of terror on peter's face like at any moment like it's very obviously cliche of the 60s that a character gets a you know amnesia and doesn't remember who they are until they conveniently get their memory back and then conveniently lose it again like it's very of the time but Conway, which is crazy how young Conway was, because wasn't he like 21, 22? Yeah. And he's writing this like an absolute pro. Yeah. And, it, you know, the one thing that I always notice when I go back to this era of comics 
it can't be understated how much work these guys put in and how much they have to really come up with story every month because one they're not they're not just doing splash pages or or you know the the storytelling isn't so decompressed where like this is this would these two issues would be a 12 issue storyline six minimum right oh yeah there's so much going on in this issue like from norman relapsing like into the green goblin you have uh, like we don't even get to see harry doing drugs like we just get there and he's already in drugs like it's just like boom like what is happening like again if you read the issues two issues previous there's nothing setting up what's about to happen like you like suddenly um and this is i guess true of life you go on a trip and you come back and suddenly the world has changed so like peter's back and suddenly Harry Osborne's in the, you know, in, in the hospital, you have Norman having a, like a, a panic attack because his stock is down. His son's in the hospital. He's trying to deal with all this. And then he's also got, you know, these memories that are in his mind that he's not able to access as well. Peter's under the weather. Like that's something that people forget too, is that he's under the weather initially um, that he's like, I must've caught a virus when he was up in Canada, hmm. which is kind of bullshit, but whatever. <laughs> uh, Cause he's not used to that kind of zero degree weather. I'm like, thanks a lot, Jerry. Uh, that's a lot of great stereotypes of Canada that you're really uh, pushing there. But again, there's new <laughs> elements that you will forget unless you read this because you remember the big stuff. You remember that, you know, Gwen, Gwen gets kidnapped by Green Goblin. You remember that stuff. But do you remember the intricacies of the fact that, you know, Peter's sick? That's part of what puts him down on his game when he has probably the most important battle of his life, but he's sick. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to kind of reread it because these are things you'll forget, um, you know, that there's a lot of extra stuff being packed into this. Even, you know, again, the, the descent into madness of Norman Osborn thinking he sees Spider-Man and it's just like a specter in his mind, like, and then finally remembering everything, which is, again, another fantastic Gil Kane page of just the sheer horror of Norman Osborn as he loses his mind. Like, this is... Yeah, you're right. This is at least six to 12 issues these days. And they did it in like this particular issue, just one. This is a complete huge adventure. And we haven't even like finished it. We just get, we end with the death. And yeah. then we still have a whole other issue to go. Yeah. And, and like, you definitely can see that the time, based on the time, the way the issue's written, it is catered to a more childlike reader and it's pacing and, and the, like except like you accept how you jump so drastically from scene to scene. However, um, it is still done in as seamless as a way as possible. Where even Gil Kane's art in how it manages the time lapse from one scene to the next, you really feel that this was happening within within this one issue. If that makes any sense, like you, you could see how this section could be a whole issue. This could maybe be a three-issue story arc of the first half, and then the second half is the big fight of the showdown between them in one twenty-two. But man, in in twenty-seven pages, I think this issue is. So it would have been a little bit bigger for the time. It's twenty-one. Oh, is it okay? Maybe yeah, on I, have my... it, I have it up in Marvel Unlimited, and I think that covers that counts the cover. So it's a twenty-page issue. Like this is this is not long. Like there's just okay, so much okay. in here, and even like the real estate that they use on the fight sequence, right? Um, before Gwen dies, you know, it's only maybe two, three pages, but those are some packed pages, and the layouts are so fantastic because you you can really follow along. The action is very swift and smooth. Um, again, fantastic storytelling. You have that brief moment where Spider-Man, like you know, webs up the Green Goblin and brings him forward, and then gives him a giant punch in the jaw, like, and it's a giant image. It's not quite a full splash page, but it's it's pushing it. Yeah. Um, again, Coming brilliant at you. stuff. 
Yeah. And it and it would make sense that the fight would be so swift and aggressive. Like not a lot of exchanges necessarily because he's only got he, he doesn't have much strength in him. Like he's set you up for the fact that I'm weak as it is. I got to get this over with quick and get her safe minimum. Mm-hmm. And so That's- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, the one thing I... So, when they kill off Gwen in the Amazing Spider-Man 2 movie, so obviously the circumstances were different, but it was still... A Green Goblin was still involved, but it wasn't it wasn't actually as malicious. It was, like, just kind of more of an accidental uh, in some ways. I mean, obviously, Harry wanted to kill her, but he wasn't, like, throwing her off something, per se. But I remember being in the theater and just watching her body hit the ground, which was, was so much worse than this in some ways. Like, it was just... it was. Like they're, they're both awful in, in, in the same in similar ways but seeing you know Emma Stone's body and then like flop against the ground as you know she bounces up with the web was so chilling to watch that at this point like my son's like when do we get to watch the amazing spider-man movies I'm like I don't know ma'am but these are these are these are not these are these are a little rough like these are rough to watch yeah it hits you when when you see it in live action in that scene um, always hoping like ah, maybe they'll change it. Maybe, maybe maybe this time she'll you know like give him a break but yeah it's it's always tough to see it and so i was thinking to myself and i don't know if this has ever been referenced because we know how many times they've gone to the well of the gwen stacy story and in some cases done some diabolical things with her and norman mm-hmm. um that's very kind of you yeah it's been undone yeah yeah, no, it ha- I get it, but it's one of those things that it's it it ha- like they wrote that story and they let it sit there for so long, even though it's been undone, it's kind of still happened. Yeah, it so, was there for over a decade. Yeah, it was there too. It, it anyways, um, and then in, and recently in the clone conspiracy, they made it so that she heard them fighting. But up until mm-hmm. then, I was thinking to myself, it would have been interesting if she had already been dead. Like the goblin already killed her, and it was always her body just there. So when no, she... I, I mean yes, I mean that's that would have been interesting. But again, there's just something about the the snap needs to be there, and he needs to be the one who accidentally kills her. There's just something about that added level of tragedy, which is upsetting. But something about that feels very Parker luck, right? Like, you know, yeah, you know, he did everything he can to save her, and it's actually his fault that she's dead, and that's that's the tragedy and that's there's just something very poetic about that 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 jerry put in there when he uh and yeah i i don't even know i don't i don't know if there's a better way to do that because there's something about how that works for the story and i guess what's more haunting about that is that he doesn't necessarily even know that that's what we the the viewer know that or the us the reader which so we know something that he doesn't which adds an extra level of of tragedy Mm. um I like stuff like that where it adds something that the character doesn't even necessarily know. Um, one of my favorites is in the series uh, Daredevil Batlin Jack Murdoch, or Batlin Jack is what it's called, I can't remember, um, by Zeb Wells and Carmine Domenico. And what I love about that is that, the, well, I'm going to give a spoiler, so I apologize if you're planning on reading this. Um, but the whole idea of it at the end is uh, Jack realizes that his son basically has powers and that his son can take care of himself. So... When he throws the fight, he's not doing it as a selfish asshole who's trying to for his own pride and leaving his, you know, his, his blind son, you know, so to speak, defenseless. He know he does it knowing that he's going to be okay. 
He knows that he's got disabilities. He knows he's a fighter. He knows that, you know, he was this guy who was able to fight someone off that he kind of knew about. Um, and so he goes away with that knowledge. So when they're like, you know, you know, we're going to go after your son next. And he's just laughing at them because he knows what that means. Matt will never know that his dad knew uh, that, you know, that he was, you know, had, had powers and abilities and could defend himself. But his, but we, the reader know that. And there's just something really interesting and powerful about that because we now know something that, that, that the character could never know. It adds an extra level of dimension. I wish there was a way the character could know it. I wish that most people, more people would uh, lean into that or remember that that story even exists because it's so beautiful and haunting and it changes a Jack Murdoch from someone who did something kind of selfish at the end for pride to someone who did something for pride, but also didn't understand and know his son and knew that his son would be okay. And there's just something about that from a father's perspective that adds an extra level of dimension to that character and kind of, you know, resuscitates the character a little. Right. And I, think I don't know why I got into that, but I just had to mention it. No, I think, well, it, it's that touch of the reader being aware of something that no one else is. That, mm -hmm. And I think that that is the charm a lot of times of um, comic book fans is that you know the secret identity of the person. You know that sure. secret life that they're living. You know the secrets that they're keeping to sometimes make themselves look bad, to protect another person. Like there's all of these different aspects of it that I think that's when you do that with within the artwork or when you do that within information as the reader it's always that reward that's like that's why I'm here it's because there's a trust that you're building with with the writer and the artist and the reader right it's it's this little secret you guys are keeping together for sure so I guess going back to what you mentioned about the clone conspiracy that's one of my favorite things um, in a long time was that short story at the end of the first issue of Clone Conspiracy where you had Ron Friends doing the art and kind of revisiting that moment and seeing that, you know, Gwen did know when she died that he was, you know, that he was, that Peter was Spider-Man. I love that story. Mm -hmm. um, I love the art in it. I love how Ron Friends captured it. I was so sad that uh, none of those pages ever went up for sale. I think someone bought them independently or like privately before they ever went up for sale because I wanted a page from that story so bad. Um, but yeah, there's just something very tragic about the character knowing, um, you know, when she died. And I don't know if I, I, part of me likes the idea that she was not conscious, but part of me likes the idea that she was awake and it was, but it's, but it's also more horrifying. So I'm actually not sure if me liking it from a storytelling perspective makes me more of a ghoul. I know, right? It, it's one of those things that sometimes the things that you prefer being known in a story or being shown makes you kind of like, ah, should I really like that or not? I get you. Because it's, when you do read that, it's like, oh, goodness. like, It's she, worse. It's worse. Yeah, because there's that knowledge that she has in those final moments that like, they don't share it. It's just so so much more. It's like, do we really need more tragedy? Like, thank you very much. But again, it's it's the hidden tragedy, right? Because right. he'll never know that she felt betrayed at the moment of her death. Oh. Um, you know, like that's which is horrifying it's terrible but i mean also it, it, it adds an interesting dimension right like she didn't need to be unconscious here it actually makes it more interesting from a writing perspective but yeah from a character perspective uh again we the reader know it's so much worse than they realize it's always interesting again when the elements of that like even in you know the dark knight where batman doesn't realize that rachel was going to marry harvey and 
you know, they'll never know because Alfred burns the thing, right? Like, right, right. You know, we as, as an audience know something, but, you know, the character doesn't. Um, but I would say that adds less depth than this does. This is more more interesting. Um, again, it doesn't end up meaning anything, or, or but it does kind of change how you view the moment, that's for sure. Yeah, the layers that they have added to, to that moment in itself. So... Uh, moving on to issue 122, you think we could do well, that? Well, actually, before we do, I have okay. one last question about 121. Okay. So, after Gwen dies, and so, first of all, I, I there's a one panel where after, like, the web hits her leg, and then Spider-Man's kind of roll, uh, reeling her in, it makes it look like, for the moment, like, the web is on her, like, stomach area, not on, necessarily on the leg, right. because of the, the way in which um, Gil Kane has her in pulling him up, but that might just be, like, you know, whatever, not a big deal. But the next page is so fascinating because of how much time Jerry spends on the dialogue of Peter talking to Gwen and then slowly realizing. Yeah. So I've actually of two minds of this. Part of me really likes it, but part of me wonders if maybe he could have gotten out of Gil Kane's way and just let us appreciate the moment slowly because there's so much dialogue as he's talking, which does make sense for Peter um, and also for the time period and just, you know, just kind of, pushing a lot of dialogue but if you remember when harry osborne died in spectacular 200 you had jam Demateus stepping back and letting sabasema just do the art because he realized anything i add to here is just going to be a mess of words on an otherwise beautiful page so why would i do that i'm just going to let this be quiet do you think that this moment would have been a little bit better served if jerry had dialed back on the dialogue i'm i'm looking at the page right now and listening to everything that you just said, and I think you're right. Because it's a really heartbreaking moment, but there's so much dialogue. Like, I think you could have halved it. Like, there's just something about, you know... I think after I he says he's... Gwen, once he says Gwen, and he holds her chin, and he puts her head down, that would have been so mm. powerful. Because even... I do like the I do like the I saved you, you can't be. Yes. Like, I think I like I like that the most because yeah. it's the, the stunned realization that like, but no, I did my thing. I saved you. You can't be. But then he keeps talking. Like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Don't be dead. Gwen, I don't want you to be dead. I feel like just him embracing her kind of would have served the moment as you know just as well. Like, I don't think it needed to have so much. Now, on the next panel, that I, I'm okay with. It. I saved you, honey. Don't you see? And then in smaller text, I saved you. Yeah, that works for me. I think I guess it's just that that little bit there where he kind of keeps expanding on "Don't be dead, don't be dead." I yeah. feel like it's extra. I think it doesn't need to be there. Editorially, like, what's the what do they say Monday Mon Monday morning quarterbacking? <laughs> I think you're right though, because there's so much simplicity in how the 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 angle of the panel where you, just the enough of his hand that you see holding the head and the. Even just the not it's spider sense, but the sensitivity around his head in that frame, where mm -hmm. you know that there is a painful, like a stress, but not an aggressive stress. It's like this is joyless at this point, and that on the bridge, I saved you. Don't you see? Like that would have mm -hmm. been enough. Because in the next panel, you just get don't you? He's she's been dead. That's why when he says that, it made me think like. What if this was just a, always a cruel trick that the mm -hmm. goblin had done to him had he and Peter always messed with his own brain? So it was, still would have been something that only we knew, but Peter would always mess with his own brain about yeah. what happened. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah. Now, the last page of the issue is 
probably like one of the more iconic ones as well. You have Spider-Man screaming. I get a lot of dialogue, but it kind of works for me, partially because in my mind I hear Christopher Daniel Barnes from the 90s show because it has a similar kind of dialogue uh, after MJ, you know, quote-unquote dies, but really was sucked away by a teleporter. That's what happens in cartoons. Um, But it's interesting. So I have the artist edition of this, of the Gil Kane, Um, So it has this issue in it. And what's interesting about the placement of Spider-Man's right hand, so the the hand on the left for us, is that it's it's actually been redrawn to be in that spot. Originally, it was closer to his head, but then they couldn't have the the, the kind of the the lines around his face that kind of showed that he's shouting. So they ended up redrawing the arm and moving it over a little bit more. And I think that does work a lot more. Uh, But it's interesting because you can just barely see it on the artist edition where it was kind of rubbed out. Hmm, interesting. All these little subtleties that, yeah, they do make a difference. Like when I, when people talk about art director and I'm like, what would they do? What would their job be? And when mm. you, when you see how things get edited in, in a, even just a printed edition, reprinted edition of what it was really like creating it, it makes you appreciate even more what goes into the whole production of these stories that you take for granted when you just flip through like, like I do. Sometimes I miss the art. So, so that, now we can move on to okay. 122, okay. Um, which is, again, to be honest, it's a very fast-moving issue because this is like the action one, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Gwen's dead. Now it's all about, you know, vengeance for Peter, um, which is fantastic. On the third page, so we get some good action right up at the top of the issue. Uh, you have what I think is a very iconic image, and I think one that had already been used previous in a similar way i think by ramita originally um you have the shot of spider-man on uh, green goblin's back but then you have the inset of spider of green goblin's face and then spider-man's right behind him and they're kind of screaming at each other there's right. something about green goblin's face there all the line work which works so well like obviously you know uh, sometimes they use very simplistic line work for the the contours of the goblin mask but here there's just so many lines but it really works uh, to show just how hideous the goblin is and how much it's really become his face. Um, I really like that detail. Yeah. it's um, It really doesn't let up, this issue. It's it, No. And, and um, you feel the, the, the vengeance in Peter's voice for... I don't know if you've ever seen him this angry before, but you believe it. And it, I don't know how... Lo- I haven't read all of these issues after this one, mm-hmm. but I don't know how long he stays in somewhat of that dark vengeful place it would have been interesting to see how he changes yeah it persists for a little while obviously i mean it would have to um on page five you have a a very i i really like the shot of um spider-man going to gwen's body that he's kind of left when he went to Mm. go fight the green goblin and you know he tells the police to get off and there's all these like onlookers and you know one of them um retroactively is phil sheldon from marvel's um, because they took this exact panel where Spider-Man, you know, we're, at, we're behind Spider-Man's back and we're watching him as he's talking to the cops. And then you got these other people on the left-hand side. And one of them, the one who's kind of wearing some glasses and, and kind of like a fedora hat, uh, is Phil Sheldon when ah, Alex Ross redo- redoes this image. Very cool. Um, so, so they basically just added that he was there at this moment uh, because if you've read Marvel's, um, Phil Sheldon was having correspondence with Gwen and trying to kind of get justice for her because of her dad's death and try to do kind of a story on her. And so he was trying to meet up with Gwen when she was abducted by the Green Goblin. So he ended up going to the bridge and kind of following the Green Goblin and seeing this battle, watching her die. And then he's there on this pier 
uh, to try and you know get close to her when Spider-Man tells everyone to kind of get lost. So it's again, it's a it's a it's a moment that shows up a lot. That's brilliant. That Marvel's tie-in of it, the way to to see it from a perspective of someone who was there. That's so cool. I remember that now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there was another issue. Peter Parker, Spider-Man. I think I want to say 26 or so. I believe by Paul Jenkins, and it was an issue that was kind of all about cops and what they felt about spider-man and i think one of them one of the people that are interviewed in that issue uh is the um, the black cop here i believe um and he's telling the story uh of you know what it was like seeing spider-man there and i think he tells a story afterwards about how he sees peter and he he says you know for what it's worth i think spider-man did everything he could to save her and spider-man just kind of, or peter just looks at him with, with tears in his eyes he's like thanks you know, because obviously that, you know, the guy doesn't realize that he's talking to the guy who did try to save her. Um, and he, he just kind of needed to hear that affirmation that, you know, someone believes in him that he did do everything he could. Yeah, it, it's, again, hearkening back to what we were saying about the impact of this story. When the hero loses, sometimes it really makes his character so much more of an everlasting, like it's the everlasting impact that that character will have because they sometimes lose and it builds up who they become when your character is bulletproof where they always figure it out or you know like the consequences are never felt after a while it just loses the the charm and i think that this is one of that spider-man always has this on his shoulders that you can revisit it like it like you said with paul jenkins to for that cop to for that dialogue, like you understand the how much that would mean to Peter. It's very mm-hmm. cool. Uh, later in the issue, one thing I like mm-hmm. about when you have uh, Peter going around as Peter, so he's not Spider Man, and he had, you know he goes to the yeah. Bugle, he goes uh, to you know to Herod Osborne's place. A uh, really interesting eyes. detail that I like that uh, Gil Kane does is he gives um, kind of these extra bags under Peter's eyes. Yeah, like Peter looks really kind of sullen. Uh, darker he looks upset um it's a really nice you know uh visual tick to kind of show what the character is going through in a very you know without having to use any dialogue uh just you know a slight touch you can tell how haunted he is uh throughout you know the throughout the issue but yeah this is it all leads up to the big fight right it all is about you know spider-man's able to find the green goblin they have their big final battle um there's a few shots in here that are, are often kind of reused or looked at whenever they, people kind of do a retrospective or callbacks to this big fight, big fight. Like on page 15, uh, you have a shot of Spider-Man jumping uh, over some, some uh, I guess, uh, uh, what's the word, crates. He's got his hands like under his legs. His legs are thrown up. You have the goblin, you know, blasting at him. Uh, that one shows up a lot when people kind of do references to this final battle. There's just something about that shot. Um, and then obviously the big one is uh, a certain glider going right into someone's chest, um, which is, again, very iconic, as well as the idea that Spider-Man wanted to kill the goblin and could have, but then stopped himself, which is, again, very iconic Spider-Man. Like, he might let himself get pushed to the edge, but eventually he will kind of come back from it and realize that, that he's not a murderer. That's not who he is as much as he might want to. And this is, you know, probably the closest he was ever going to get to being a murderer. Yeah, and I don't think any. I I think in this issue, as you read it, you kind of, it's almost like that Batman and Joker thing. It's like just do it already, mm-hmm. because if there's any ever any reason to, and anybody who deserves it, now's the time. Like this is too far, 
Yeah. And it, it's kind of like the the um, symbolism in the movie that just the No Way Home. Like Spider Man doesn't kill; he just mm-hmm. does not allow even his enemies. He doesn't allow them to die if he can stop it. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting too, right? Because like Spider Man, like I'm, I'm Jerry must have thought. Now that I've had Green Goblin kill Gwen, she he has to die. Like we can't use him anymore. Like there's just something at the time he probably thought, you know, that was the the tipping point. Like at, at that point, can you keep using this character without, you know, it just feeling weird that you know he he knows Spider Man's identity. You either have to go back to the amnesia well, or you have to figure out a reason why he's not going to give up his identity. Like you end up with all these issues. So by killing him, you kind of resolve that. And what I like about it is that they don't glorify the death at all because you have him get slammed to the wall you have the the glider like kind of sputter out and then the next page he just falls to the ground like it's just it's unceremonious um you know and he just kind of flumps over like that's it like there's nothing no grand moment there's no you know what i mean like the reader if you were hoping the green goblin would die even though you knew that peter wouldn't be able to kill him you can't even be like yeah green goblin's dead because you know Jerry, Jerry Conway makes it so that you can't root for that moment. He makes it just so sad and pathetic that you know this happens to be the result. But at the end of the day, like he just gets, as they say, crucified on a piece of tin and just falls off, you know, and, and plumps on the ground, and then that's it. And even Spider Man says, like, you know, when a man dies, it should mean something. Yeah, it shouldn't be an accident. A stupid, senseless accident's got to have a point. And then he just kind of leaves. And then this is obviously a great kind of climactic moment is that, you know, someone's in the shadows and you don't know who that is initially, which is, again, a really great kind of twist to leave that, you know, you think you've seen everything, but now what's this going to mean? How are we going to find out, you know, uh, who, you know, who sees this, this big climactic battle? And then you have the epilogue, which is, again, extremely famous because this is the moment when, sorry, Mary Jane starts to change where, you know, Peter Parker goes home. He's he's just distraught, and MJ's not going to leave him alone. She's going to you know shut the door, and she's going to stay with him, and that changes the character forever. It's incredible how much of an impact Jerry Conway's run on Spider-Man has had and will. It just remains. Other than Stan Lee, can you? Is there anyone who's had that much of an impact in hmm. in a in a pocket of time where they wrote the character there's been great runs yeah just in these um, 120 I, I, I issues guess you're, you're probably right that there isn't mainly because like you know you, you point to roger stern but like you know besides creating the hobgoblin like he did some excellent stories but was there excellent. something that really changed the character not so much although it did add a new archetype the whole you know spider-man fighting against the juggernaut um, is an archetype that they'll go back to now that, you know, him going against the unbeatable, unstoppable foe and trying to figure out a way to do that. Uh, he kind of created a new, you know, type of story that you would see in Spider-Man. But other than that, uh, David Michelinie has some, ex- you know, big moments that he did. He obviously created, you know, Carnage, created Venom. Um, but in terms of kind of impactful stories, and maybe not as much, whereas, you know, Jerry Conway creates the Punisher, he creates the Jackal, creates the Clone Saga, which in and of itself begets, you know, many years worth of stories just springing from that main idea. Plus, again, you have the death of Gwen itself. So, you know, those those things in that two to three year period, yeah, extremely impactful outside of just creating a character, he creates a whole new archetype as well. Yeah, and then uh, Harry as the Green Goblin is included in that time too. 
That's true. Yeah, that's you a know. big one. Although I would say, you know, he it was a big story. It was a cool story, but you know, it doesn't really have its oomph. I would say future writers did a lot more with it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, our, our our best friend Jam Demetrius definitely <laughs> did the most um, in terms of really delving into what that means for a friendship, what it means that for the psychosis of the character. Um, again, written in a very different time period um, and being allowed to you know, take liberties and uh, do exploration and more issues than Jerry ever would have had the opportunity to. Um, but yeah, no one's, you know, there's something about Jerry's run. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's not very long, um, but it, yeah, it has a lot of great stuff. There's some clunkers in there too, but everyone has a clunker or two. And that's the thing is that they were like, even when you look back at, um, I always refer to Claremont and Byrne and Cockrum's run on the X-Men, just in those, that first chunk of years, the it just seemed like every issue was impactful because and they're telling so much story in those issues because they weren't these six issue arcs that they stretch everything out to now so when you look at where where jerry comes on well i'm not sure exactly what issue he's the permanent writer is it around 110 uh i think it's a little later but it's in and around that period yeah and then he ends off at 149 yeah around there so it's a good couple years that he's on the book for sure, I, th I thought of another one actually that w infamous is for sure is JMS um, because he starts with you know a very celebrated beginning with that big main Morlun story coming home um, that for a lot of people is like that's you know a great entry point to Spider-Man because it kind of boils it down to again using the juggernaut formula like going up against the unstoppable foe how do you defeat someone who can't be stopped um, but then in that run you have since past, which is memorable, uh, if not uh, high quality. Um, same thing with one more day. Like you know, those those two things alone were very impactful. Had a huge impact on the mythos. Uh, again, for better or for worse. You also had the whole period of Spider-Man really settling in and being an Avenger um, in a way that in New Avengers they never really focused on what Spider-Man was actually dealing with now living in the Avengers Tower, what that meant. Uh, the Iron Spider costume, which has you know, been adapted to other media. Um, again, Morlan, as I already said, has been used as well. So, you know, I would say JMS as well, which his run was actually pretty long, um, but there's a lot in there as well. Again, not always the best, um, but a lot of things that did have a huge impact on the character. Yeah, that's true. JMS did have... And it, and, and it was something you felt at the time and the years that followed. I would have to say that Dan Slott would be up there, though, with yeah, Jerry Conway. I, so. I think because of you, just the characters he created, you know, the whole Spider-Verse and how he was, you know, even Bendis with, with the ultimate Spider-Man, but the Spider-Verse being able to incorporate all of those things, because now you really feel it in this last yeah. movie. Although, if you, uh, if you follow John Semper Jr., uh, he likes to point out every day yeah. that his sh his show did it first, which, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not the most novel of concept of bringing alternate realities of a character together, but he's definitely the one who did it first. Yes, it's true. It's true. He did. Um, I mean, everyone really like when you do go down the line of people who worked on the character, it is a, it is a special one because when you do them right, when you do right by Spider-Man, those stories will live forever. Like even Peter David's, the way that he's treated the character, it's pretty iconic. You got Jam DeMatteis, like we mentioned before. Like, good grief, the stuff he's done was pretty iconic. And then, and same with the the uh, JMS time. A lot of people hold Paul Jenkins stuff in in high regard. 
Yeah, his his stuff was interesting because I would say that JMS was more plot heavy. Yeah. In comparison, whereas JM, uh, sorry, Jenkins was uh, all about the character. He was about deep diving into a, a similar, similar but very different to JM de Mateus. Because JM de Mateus is actually an interesting combination of plot and character. Because uh, you know he does move plots along pretty well too, but he's obsessed with character. Like he and you know there's just something about his philosophy as a, as a writer. Like following him on Twitter is always interesting because he just puts up these these nuggets of ideas and just like philosophy. And I'm just like, man, I just want to be in your brain. Like I know. it's just it's just fascinating. And whenever I talk to him, I'm just like uh, very thankful for the you know the minutes I get to spend with him because he, he he just feels like jazz when he's writing. Like you know you listen to guys like Bendis etc. And it feels like you know, the characters don't spill out of them in the same way. Like, they have to write it, and they have to really sit down and sit with it and come up with the voices, etc. Whereas, Jim de Mateus, these characters just live in his brain, and then he just taps into them, yeah. and then he just, he just goes along for the ride, and the characters go where they want to go. And there's just something very... It sounds almost hokey, but when you talk to him, you're like, no, that's what's happening here. Yeah, yeah, no, I... I mean, having, having spoken to myself, I always said that's one of my favorite people I've ever spoken to as far as a creator is concerned in any type of medium because like you said they they don't have they don't approach the characters with um i don't know if the right term would be an agenda like i gotta tell this story this character he lets those characters talk to him and i think tom defalco said the same thing he's like the they, these stories write themselves you just gotta let them do what they do mm-hmm. but um We'll, we'll end this this week's or this month's book club there because it's almost a bedtime, time. And we will continue this uh, discussion with issues 136 and 137 of The Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, those are – I'm really interested to talk to you about those particularly because those are issues that like are iconic but not well-known somehow like at the same time. Like I think it's more the concept is very well-known that, you know, Harry becomes the Green Goblin. Okay, well, that seems like a natural place for it to go at some point. But it's how you get there and what that's like, which is, I think, surprising to people. Because, um, you know, it's 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 big, it's fun and exciting. The covers are great, or at least that yeah. first one's really good. Um, very iconic as well. Um, but again, I feel like it's issues that aren't reprinted that often and aren't actually discussed. It's more the idea of the issue is mentioned as, as opposed to the actual issue. Whereas, as we've talked about with 121 and 122, constantly referenced constantly mined for you know ideas those panels that are constantly lifted and reused like those two issues are extremely you know even if you don't haven't read them you know them whereas right. i would say with 136 and 137 that's not the case yeah and and they are fun considering everything that has happened with the history with these characters when you do get to this it's like it's it's very fitting and there's that payoff there's a certain payoff that you I understand now why you said to read everything in between mm. because I, I can see why having read those issues as well. Oh, okay. I can see where this whole payoff, there's a build up to this moment. So it's good stuff, man. That's seven. Yeah, do, do you remember subplots in comics? Like you don't really see them anymore. I know. I, and, and I hate being that guy, but there's a certain thing that you appreciate of a time where they used to pencil everything. There was a limit to the colors that they would use and all of the choices were so much more, I don't know, like, I don't know if precious is the right word, but they counted a little bit more. You yeah, appreciated well, I mean, it. I, I think there's something about subplots in general. I mean, obviously it's a very different medium, but you had these writers on books with undetermined 
kind of schedules. They could be on it for like a long time or a short time, but they never really knew. But they would just kind of seed things and just play with things so that they could come back to them later. Um, again, they weren't playing in four, four or six issue kind of chunks. Sometimes that's all you know you have as a writer now. Um, so what, what sense does it make to create a subplot unless it's something you're going to pay off in your particular run? But it did make it feel more cohesive as an ongoing long-term narrative when you had subplots that you could just jump in and out of. Like, obviously, Claremont did that a lot on X-Men. So you felt like you were reading a long tapestry as opposed to shorter adventures that happen to be connected in terms of timeline, but they're not actually interwoven as much. And I, I do miss subplots because, again, the whole Harry subplot of him, something being wrong with Harry, and Harry, ooh, Harry found a Spider-Man mask. What does that mean? Like, that's a good build-up to something exciting. Yeah, no, it's true. And like you were saying, with, with now you got the six-issue thing, it makes somewhat of the things that you read in certain amounts of time feel a little more disposable because they get the next story gets told so quickly. Whereas these ones, it's like you have to refer back to that or there's a well there that let's use that thing that's been left hanging to be mm -hmm. something cool. So that investment means a little more. For sure. Yeah. Well... Let's wrap this one up. Thank you, Mr. Chapman. Uh, everybody listen to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Where can they find it, Adam? Uh, I mean, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, I think those are the main places. Technically, I think it's on Amazon Music uh, under their podcast listing as well somewhere. Um, you know, it, it's I, I keep threatening that the show is going to end soon. Uh, I still haven't decided. It's so horrible. I have like 40 episodes left till 1,000, and I'm still kind of on the fence. But I think the episode, the, the show's ending. Um, the big thing that actually we're, we're working on right now, me and Curtis Finley of the Epic Marvel podcast is, and this might be still a long ways away, but we've been uh, kind of noodling around with the idea of taking a lot of the interviews that I've conducted and also some of the ones that he's done and start to put them together in a book format. Um, oh, and then cool. self-publish through Amazon or something like that, um, just to kind of get some of those interviews out there. So we'd maybe have a Spider-Man focused one where we'd have some of the, you know, the, the Spider-Man focused highlights of the interviews we talked about, um, uh, in, you know, in a, in a book so that people can kind of, uh, you know, um, immortalize the interviews that I've done. Cause eventually when I'm done with the show, I mean, I don't know how long I'll be able to keep it on iTunes and keep that archive up there. Um, so I'd hate for those interviews to just kind of go away. So this would be a way for them to kind of live on. So I've done... I don't know, 200 interviews. So I don't know how, you know, how, what the chances are of how much of it would be captured in books. But uh, in theory, that's something we would like to look into. I thought you've done more than that, but 200 is still plenty. Good for you. I'd man. have to count, but I don't know. I mean, it, it's possible. I started around issue two, sorry, issue, uh, episode 250. I'm at, that's about 700 episodes ago. But every other episode is reviews, not you know other content so of those 700 really it's you know about 350 that could be interviews and a lot of a lot of them were not interviews so i, I don't know I, i'd have to double check i think it's you know between 150 to 200 i could be wrong that's still incredible and i think it's still a lot of still a lot of people if yeah of course and i i encourage everyone who's a comic book fan and and likes the classic writers it's a great place to go to to find them you will find them there for sure. Yeah, actually, one of my my favorites that I've done recently um, with our again our best friend Jam Domateus uh, is a, I got to have him on to specifically talk about the Child Within, which is the most criminally non reprinted Spider Man story in history. Um, it's it's so good. It's never been reprinted. It's in uh, Spectacular Spider Man. I want to say one seventy six to like one eighty one or in that in that ballpark. Um, it is so good. It's all about 
Harry Osborne and the Osborne legacy, uh, becoming the Green Goblin again because he hadn't been the Green Goblin for much, you know a long time at that point. Um, it's very cerebral. It's got some dark stuff in it too, um, but it really is you know jam de has said that even though he's written the death of harry osborne even though he's written you know the craven's last hunt that his favorite spider-man work that he wrote was the child within and that coming from a guy like that who's written those seminal classics that are that are reprinted all the time uh it's just so weird that this particular one has never been reprinted and i don't know why he doesn't know why but uh you know next year we're getting or this year we're getting the spectacular spider-man is starting out in omnibus format um there's a lot of people who believe that epics are on the way within the next year or two so hopefully um you know sometime soon hopefully while jmd is still alive they will finally reprint child within yeah a first day purchase for me great oh, absolutely yeah. great i'm gonna Spider-Man pre-order story. that the first second i can yeah hundred percent well thank you mr chapman you have yourself a good evening say hello to the kitties at home and uh everybody stay tuned for more episodes and and book clubs with the comic shenanigans guy adam chapman thanks so much for having me sounds good thank you everybody take care and be safe